Several years ago, uh, during a rainy season, uh, our old sanctuary, which is up on the big screen, uh, developed several leaks. And so uh, some of you who at that time may remember that we would place out like buckets in the back of the sanctuary to catch the constant dripping of water. And over time, you could see on the exterior that the outside wood was starting to warp. The stucco was starting to crumble, and even the paint was uh, beginning to peel. And so we're very thankful and relieved uh, when uh, members of our church did some external fixes and slapped on a fresh coat of paint. But when Daniel Bow was the property deacon, and during one of the rainy seasons, we continuously were repairing the he decided to have the interior ceiling peeled open and to discover that the underlying wooden beams were soft and moldy and rotten. In fact, you could squeeze the wood in your hands and it would just crumble. You see, they, we had to repair all that stuff because it's not enough to simply restore what's on the outside if you don't deal with the destructive rot on the inside. And do you know that that is also true of your life? That we have this tendency to think that if I just improved my health or my wealth, or my surroundings, or my success, or that even if there was peace in my home, or peace in our world, then I would be doing okay. Then I would be happy. But like an old building, it's not enough to restore the external circumstances if you don't deal with the internal rot from within. So let's discover what that looks like this morning by turning in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 9. We are in this series called How People Experience Restoration by Returning to God to Rebuild What is Broken. That when he builds it, he doesn't simply replace things, but for God to build something new, something better. It is a picture of the gospel and what Jesus does in our lives. And we remember that previously, uh, they have now finished the walls of Jerusalem to create a refuge welcoming people to worship God because restoration is not just about walls, but about worship to the glory of God and for the good of people. And so the people have gathered together for worship and they are hearing the Lord speak through his word. And as they do, they experience his joy and his strength that comes not just from the restoration of your external circumstances or external walls, but by dealing with the internal circumstances of your soul. But... The process is not yet complete. And so today we're going to discover how God performs spiritual surgery, internal surgery, to clean out the internal and destructive rot of sin so that he can restore their souls, their joy, and their strength for the people of God this morning. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, 
Hashab, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So here in verse 1, it is after the Jewish New Year on their calendar, the seventh month, and they have this New Year's worship service, you remember? Then they celebrate a few weeks later the festival of... They gather together again for much more occasion. They're fasting. They're clothed in sackcloth and dust. These are all signs of spiritual poverty, of mourning over their sin, what we call repentance. Verse 2, they separate themselves from those who do not worship God, not in exclusiveness, exclusion or racism, but in recognition that it's not other people's sins, but the people of God who are in need of repentance. You see in verse 2, they're con confessing their own sins and the iniquities of their forefathers. So question for you, why are they digging up the past? Past mistakes, including their ancestors' mistakes, mistakes that they haven't made, but their forefathers made. Isn't that just ancient history? Now we know that sin is turning from God because we don't love Him or trust Him or follow Him and His ways, and instead we decide to go our own way in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds by sins of omission, things that we do that we shouldn't do, and sins of commission, things that we ought not to be doing. And we forget that sin is not only rebellion against God, but that sin destroys our life with God and devastates the lives of others. And we're going to see that later in this passage. And so what happens with sin is that we commit it personally, it affects us communally, it affects other people. Let me give you an example. So I got this from both sides of my family. I grew up in a home or in a family uh, where on my father's side, uh, there was a lot of addiction. And so by nature and nurture, it was sown into my life. Then um, from my mother's side, I grew up with a, my mother's family that was very angry, where the native language that we spoke in our house was, an, was not English, was not Chinese or Mandarin, but yelling was the native language of my Slowly, I watched as these two types of sin in my parents' generation started ruining many lives in their generation, but also that there were repercussions and repetition in my generation, particularly in myself. And now I'm deathly afraid that I'm going to pass on this pain and this pattern to my own children. And so as I work through things with a Christian therapist for many years, on and off with different therapists, oh, trying to root out these kinds of patterns and pains of sin, I had this one great therapist, Christian therapist, frame it for me this way. You know, as you come to understand where your destructive sin comes from, like from your family of origin and maybe patterns of sin in with them, it gives us an explanation, but not an excuse, that we still need to deal with the responsibility and the repercussions to ourselves and to other people. And so what that means, you and I commit, we can't simply just ignore it once it's done or forget about it or cover it up and then move on with our lives. That because of the effect on ourselves and others, it requires spiritual surgery, the spiritual surgery of repentance to excise this poison in our system because it is killing us and it is toxic to other people. 
You don't want to be that person who is radiating toxicity, but that's what happens when we have undealt with sin in our lives. So, what do we do if we're unaware of where we need to change? Because a lot of times we don't recognize our own toxicity. In verses 3 to 5, led by the pastors and prayer, uh, the people of God, (coughs) excuse me, are listening to Scripture for how long? Three hours, about a quarter of the day. And as God is speaking through, to them through sermons, through the Bible, it ev- evokes a response of confession and worship. Do you see that in verse 3? And so the big idea this morning is that like the people of God back then, that as we encounter God through His Word that leads us to deal with our sins of the past and their effects on the present through repentance. And so we're going to start off this morning asking you, How often, how regularly are you coming before God and hearing Him through His Word? It is the primary way that God speaks to us, and it is impossible for you and I to draw, grow, or to change without regularly listening to God and encountering Him in His Word. Secondly, What is your tendency? Is your tendency to ignore your sins of the past or to confront them? Do you ignore or confront your sins of the past because you know that there is a real fallout in the present? You see, this is what happens when we deal with sin. We're trying to take a shortcut, even though God wants to give us good things, we take a shortcut to getting what we want right now, but forgetting and not realizing that there is a steep price to pay later for both yourself and for all the people then what are we supposed to do with this? They're practicing confession. Now, I want you to just look at that word because we think we know what that means, but that we talk about it, we acknowledge our sin, that we, James chapter 5 verse 16 says, that we confess our sins one to another, that we might be healed. And so you and I need to Get honest with ourselves, with God, with other people, with your family, maybe with your growth group. But the goal there is to bring it out in the open so that we are not a hypocrite in secret. Secondly, when we talk about confession, that is, we need to not just be generic, we need to be specific, that we don't say to people, well, I'm just kind of struggling with some things, some things, right? But instead we say, I have this problem, this area is a problem for me. I need change and I need prayer. That's confession. So question for you, then why do the people in verse 3 respond with both confession and worship? Right? It says that they confess their sins and worship the Lord. Let's read on verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. 
And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly. And you made a name for yourself as it is uh, to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Did you see how You, 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 Lord, you made, you chose, you are, you gave. The focus is entirely on God as they're praying. Verse 6, as their creator and sustainer worthy of worship. In verse 7 and 8, as a faithful promise keeper who chose a faith-filled Abraham to receive offspring and land. In verses 9 through 12, as a compassionate redeemer for Abraham's descendants, delivering them from Slavery, suffering, and death in Egypt. In verses 13 through 15, as the good provider in the wilderness, giving God's people from his word, bread from heaven, water from rocks, courage to take a promised land. You see, their repentance starts with worship, declaring who God is and what he has done. And the reason why repentance starts with worship is so that we can accurately see who we are and what we have done in light of who God is and what he has done. Do you understand? It means that you and I, we need an objective, corrective lens to give us an objective perspective because too often you and I focus on comparing and criticizing with others. That's how we measure ourselves. We tend to, on the one hand, minimize our own sins. I'm not so bad. I'm not the problem. I'm not like that axe murderer or that politician. So we minimize what we have done wrong. And then we tend to maximize what others have done wrong. You know what? I'm not the problem, but it's my boss. It's my spouse. It's that person. They're the problem. And so you and I, we're kind of like a sniper. With pinpoint accuracy, we never miss when it comes to hitting other people's failures, their faults and failures. Bing, 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 bing. And so you and I, we spend a lot of time looking through a sniper scope at others when we need to be looking in a mirror. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, you hypocrite, take the log out from your own eye first. Then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So when we look at God in his word, in our worship, then what that happens is it puts ourselves and our sin in the right perspective. That instead of measuring with this subjective bar that uh, we tend to lower for ourselves and raise for other people, instead of the subjective bar of my comparison and criticism, we face an objective standard of God's perfection. And that gives us a clear picture of our sin. 
So I remember in college, the first time that I went to a church retreat, it was also the first time that I really listened to a sermon and began to grasp the goodness, the holiness, the kindness, the presence of Jesus. Through His Word, I started to feel overwhelmed with conviction about my own unrighteousness and destructiveness, that all the things that I thought were not that big a deal, cursing people made in the image of God, manipulating people for my gain, using people for my pleasure. And I thought of myself as, well, you know, I get into a little bit of trouble, but, you know, mostly my good outweighs my bad. I'm a pretty good person because everyone sees themselves as the of their own story. But as the Word of God convicted me, I came to realize it turns out that I am the villain and that Jesus is the hero, that Jesus is good, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is a Savior. And so as we encounter Him, as I encountered Him in worship and in His Word, it turned my world upside down, but also flipped my life right up so that I could begin seeing myself in the light of a Savior and allowing Him to make changes in my life. So if you have trouble rooting out the rot in your life, start with worship from the Word of God. Because as you see a faithful, good, and holy God, it gives us eyes to see ourselves and our sin much more clearly. Verse 16. There's a long chunk of Scripture, right? So hang in there with me. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed amongst them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the, way did not, uh, in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told uh, their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured, they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast them back to you. 
and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them their back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit, your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Here we go, wrapping up. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. I know that's a long section of scriptures. What I want you to catch is did you listen for the patterns that were happening? You see, from verse 16, there's a tension between you, 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 Lord, as contrasted to, but they, they, them, our fathers. From the worship of God's goodness we saw in the last section to the confession of their forefathers' wickedness and disobedience. And so, in verses 17 through 21, in the Exodus, they experienced God's goodness in delivering them out of Egypt, but they would rather go back to slavery and worship an idol that they made, something else other than God as God. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, steadfast, loyal love, and you did not forsake them. And this is the pattern. <clears throat> Verse 22 through 27. In the promised land, they receive God's goodness, multiplying their kingdom and their children. But what do they do? They discard his ways and his warnings, and they experience life apart from his presence and protection. That's why they come under Philistine oppression for many years. But when they cry in repentance out to God, According to your great mercies, you gave the judges that the book of Judges as saviors, because that all points forward to a greater judge, a greater savior to come in Jesus. Verses 28 to 31, we move forward in history a little bit more. In the time of the kings, so we went through the Exodus, we went through the time of the promised land. Now in the time of the kings, they received God's rest and his peace. And what do they do? They turn from him and they experience devastation at the hands of Canaanite oppression. And then they turn back to God and experience His deliverance and His mercy again. So a couple of observations. We just summarized the, the, that big, long scripture in just a, a few verses. But in every generation, even when they experience blessing with their externally prosperous situation, that doesn't solve the internal problem of their sin. Did you see that? That they experience all these good things, but it's not having good things from God that fixes the internal problem that we really need done. So repentance recognizes that it's not that you and I just made a mistake or we make one mistake, but that by our nature and our nurture, we continuously have this tendency to turn from God, just like the Israelites, to seek our satisfaction in someone or something else that is not God other than God, and then what happens? We suffer for it. You see that with the Israelites? Time and again, they turn away from God 
and they experience suffering. Not because God is cruel and punishing, but because that's what life is like when you move away from God outside of his presence and his protection. We suffer for it. And that there's this continuous need for them to come back and cry out to God in repentance. First observation. Secondly, that every time they do turn back in repentance, how does God respond? Again? What's wrong with you? I've, just, I've had just about enough of you. Right? Some of us picture maybe a, a, a very critical parent in our minds. Maybe you grew up with a household like that. Is that how God responds to their, them time and time again? Thanks, Alan, for that agreement. Verse 28, no. He says in verse 28, when they turned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and what does it say? Many times, over and over, in other words, you delivered them according to your great mercy. End of the passage. In your great mercy, you did not make an end of them. In other words, you didn't just wipe them off the face of the earth, even though they keep sinning again and again and again. It's like a, a child who keeps making that mistake and saying sorry and apologizing and still continuously forgiving them. You did not make an end of them, nor did you forsake them, but uh, because you are a gracious and merciful God. So what's happening? Jumping back to the present time, Nehemiah's people, they're praying through the patterns and pain of sin from their, their ancestors leading up all the way uh, throughout history because repentance keeps facing our ongoing failures with God's ongoing mercy. You understand? So we're honest about the failures, the patterns, the tendency by nature and nurture that to keep falling flat on our face before God, of making mistakes, of being selfish and sinful. And at the same time, understand that it's met by the incredible mercy of a God who forgives and loves again and again and again. Because the answer, when you are faced with your sinfulness and our repeated mistakes, the answer isn't do better, try harder, but instead, to humble myself, to continuously come before the cross, to confess and confront my sin, and then receive unearned forgiveness and unfailing love of God through Jesus. So question for you. How regularly are you confessing your sin and trusting the mercy of God? Some of us, we were wrongly taught growing up that you just repent one, one time and then you're saved and then you can just do whatever you want for the rest of your life because you're saved. That great reformer, Martin Luther, puts it this way, that all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. That, that means that, yes, we repent one time uh, before the Lord when we received him and we are saved for eternity, but we have an also lifestyle of repentance. Repentance is an ongoing lifestyle of being transformed by the grace of God for a lifetime. It's you and I acknowledging and asking, Lord, I cannot change myself. I keep falling flat on my face. I need your forgiveness to heal me. I need your mercy to deliver me. I need your grace to transform me. And so no matter how many times I fail, we keep coming back before the cross in repentance because, listen to me, Growing people do consistently what others only do occasionally. Do you understand? So we need to keep coming back before the cross again and again if you really want to change, if you really want to grow. But question for you, does God actually break that cycle of sin? 
Let's wrap up this passage. Therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, in all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress because of all this. We make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so in verse 32, this prayer, do you see it? It moves from you, you, Lord, and they, they, from you and they to us and we, from the historical past to Nehemiah's present. Now, therefore, our great and mighty and awesome God of keeping covenants and steadfast love, let not all this hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, Nehemiah's people. And so in verses 33 to 35, they're not blaming God. You have dealt righteously. We have acted wickedly. We have not heeded the word and warnings that you've given. Even as we've experienced blessing, we're just like our fathers, in other words. And the result in verses 36 through 37 is that even though we are not wearing chains, that sin has produced the same suffering as our forefathers, that we are like slaves, just like they have been, to the Persian Empire, paying a heavy tax, the first fruit of our land and our livestock and our lives to kings because of our sin. So the question is, how does God break the cycle? Verse 38 would seem innocuous and like it doesn't really fit into the passage. But listen to it. They make a commitment to a covenant, to a new a way of life with God. They literally are putting into writing, we will put sin to death and live in obedience to God. That's the covenant in a nutshell. And so I want you to see this. Repentance requires a change of direction and action in our lives. You see, repentance isn't just confessing your sin and asking forgiveness. The word repentance in the Bible literally means to turn, to turn from facing towards your sin with your back to Jesus, to turn away from your sin and saying, this thing needs to stop, needs to change, needs to die. And instead, face Jesus as your true hope, your true joy, your fulfillment, your freedom, your life. So question for you, if it's not about trying harder by your own ability and morality, then how do God's people here and how do we break the cycle of sin? Now, here's the key question for you. Did their change, their commitment to this covenant, did this change come before or after they received God's mercy? After, right? After the Word of God convicted them. After the grace of God transformed them. After the love of God redeemed them. Then they're empowered to turn from sin towards God. You see, true repentance is 
a response to God's grace expressed in change. That you and I can put sin to death through the power and life of Christ. And so, I want you to see that repentance is not just nominal confession where you just say some, that, that you did something and you keep do it, doing it. I'm greedy and I'm gluttonous, but what are you going to do with it? Repentance is a change, not just stating our need to. And it's not just worldly sorrow. That 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 said doesn't lead to repentance or salvation when you feel bad and there's no change because then we make it about how we feel rather than about our sin. That's not repentance. That's just worldly sorrow. And it's not religious repentance where we try to have a transaction with God where I will repent so that God will love me and bless me. So if I repent so that God will like me, even though he already loves you, or that I repent so that I want to be healthy and successful and I want to be married, I want to have kids, so I tell God I'm sorry to even the scales, then he will give me what I want. That's religious repentance. It's transactional. You don't have to manipulate God to be good to you. He's already good, and you don't need to manipulate him to do that. So as we experience his mercy and we're empowered to turn from sin to God by faith in Jesus, we make things right. We make restitution where needed. And I don't mean, it's not penance or payback to earn forgiveness from God, but in response to the forgiveness of God, we're able to make changes and make amends to others in true repentance. Some of you, your sin and situation may seem hopeless. You've been harboring anger and unforgiveness for so long, long enough, and it's been eating away at your soul. It's time to make a change. It's time to make it right through repentance. Some of us, we can't stop lying or lusting or losing control. We worship our leisure and our pleasure and our anger in place of God. Some of us, our marriages are dying. Our addictions are poisoning us. It seems hopeless. You see, sin is so and so serious that God had to become a man, face every temptation that you and I face, live the sinless life we could not live, and then pay the penalty for sin that you and I should have paid to give us the life that we cannot earn, life that is everlasting, and life that is empowered to change because Jesus paid it all. God is that holy, I am that sinful. It is that important that we deal with sin. August 1914. Ernest Shackleton set sail from England planning to cross the Antarctica on foot with 27 other men. By January, he was within 100 miles of land. They were very close. But their ship became trapped in ice. As they progressed further, the ice was starting to form around them, and it trapped their ship. And so what happened was the crew had to live on their boat an additional 11 months, almost a year, as the shifting ice pack. The problem was that as the ice kept growing and growing, it was starting to push their ship further and further away from land. And that kept happening until the pressure from the ice finally cracked the ship. The bottom of the ocean. November 1915, they had to live on the ice pack 
with salvage supplies. And the ice kept drifting, and by April 1916, the ice had completely broken apart. So that they were, but the good news was that allowed them to free their, their three lifeboats and set sail for nearby Elephant Isle. There, he left 22 of his men behind so that they could sail further to an actually inhabited place to the South Georgia Island. Miles through the planet's stormiest ocean. 16 days of battling monstrous waves and winds, bailing water out of the boat, beating ice off their sails. They made it. And what happened after that was he was able to return and rescue the other men in August 1916, two years after they started their journey. He would later die of a heart attack on South Georgia Island, and he never accomplished his goal of crossing Antarctica on foot. Pastor Steve Farrar, in his book, Finishing Strong, comments on this like this. Sin is just like that. It will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. But as we encounter God in His Word, He deals with our sins of the past and their on the present, no matter how painful or how far it takes us, he deals with them through repentance. And so as you and I enter this season of Lent, a season of reflection and repentance leading up to Easter, we're going to continue this morning to worship through communion. And so we invite all of you who are already baptized believers, followers of Jesus, to come up and take the bread and the cup and then just sit back uh, during the next song. But We invite all of you, whether you are a baptized Christian or not, to repent and to reflect on the mercy of God who has laid our sins and Savior on a cross. And as you reflect this morning, how do you need to repent? What is that secret that you're hiding, that person that you've hurt, that issue you've been avoiding, that you cannot sweep under the rug, you cannot balance the scales by being good. We need to practice genuine, genuine repentance that's honest, that is ongoing, that is accepted by Jesus' forgiveness, that is active in turning from sin and putting to death that sin through the life of Christ. How is God calling you and empowering you to make a change, to make things right today? Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the goodness of your word. We ask this morning as you have been speaking to us, speaking to me, that we would not be fearful of the changes that you want to make. And we know that surgery, spiritual surgery, any kind of surgery can be painful at times. But we want to grow healthy, holy. We want to live. So God, would you remind us again of your great mercy? Would your word bring our clear sinfulness that we might bring it before you in repentance this morning? Would you change us in the beautiful